This is Mark Lieberman, host of the podcast and radio show, The World According to Mark. And I'm happy to introduce my guest for today's podcast, Martha Ann Toll, who's speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Martha, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Thanks, Mark. I'm so happy to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, you found me, and I'm glad that we got together. Um, I think I don't exaggerate by saying you're uh, an extraordinary um, figure, person, accomplished. But the the impetus for this interview is that you have recently debuted a novel called Three Muses which is published by the Regal House Publishing Company. And they, in turn, awarded you the, I'm going to try this, Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction, which, wow, they couldn't just say, yeah, good job or thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a mouthful. Um, and so we're going to talk about uh, that novel, your inspiration, we're not going to give away the ending. We're going to talk about sort of the general plot, what your motivation was. But we're also going to talk about you and your interests because you're a multi-talented, multi-faceted person, including um, you are um, don't practice law, but you got your law degree and you practiced for a while and then you devoted your attention um, besides writing and editing and a lot of other stuff that you do to social justice issues. So thank you for being on the show. Thank and, you so much. And so I said it was a debut novel. That really doesn't give credit to the fact that you've been writing for years and years and that you have um, other novels, including a couple that are uh, one that's on the verge of being published soon, another one which is in process, could be published later, and other novels which you sought to get published, which weren't published, and fooey on those people <laughs> who didn't I do wanna, it. I, I want to correct the record. I have Please. a novel that is on submission, which means I am trying to get it published. I don't have a contract. So okay. I'm really careful to say that because anybody who writes novels knows that this is a long journey. Spoken like a true lawyer as well. <laughs> well, I don't want to be mis misinformed. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you for correcting me. So let's, um, why don't we start, just give us a sort of a short version of what this novel is about and the process for you writing it, which I think took 12 years, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. which is 12 years is a long time to do anything. <laughs> but in any event... <laughs> What is, what is this book about? Who are the three muses? How did you come to write this? And now sure. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> well, first I'm going to do some show and tell. This is my copy of Three Muses with a lot of stickies because I've been doing some readings. Um, and I had nothing to do with this beautiful cover, but I love it. The publisher has a resident artist that made the cover. And if you could see it up close, you would see that it's a ballerina sitting behind barbed wire. And that's one reason I love the cover because it suggests almost the whole story. So as Mark said, um, I, uh, it, I started writing in earnest around the time my mom died, which was 1999. So it took me 22 years to get a novel published, 
20 years, whatever. And um, so like many, many, many other writers, there's a lot of novels um, that didn't get published. So this is my debut novel in the sense that it's the one that's out in the world and I'm incredibly grateful. Um, I was looking for a way to frame a story. I had the concept of a ballerina and I had the concept of a Holocaust survivor who survived by his mother as a child. His mother um, and he and his little brother are in line for the gas chamber. And his mother says to the SS guard, Yanko can sing. Yanko was 11 at that time, and he became John Curtin when he came to this country. So Yanko survives as a little boy singing for the commandant of the camp that um, killed his family. And um, I also had a concept of a ballerina. She, as a child, is named Catherine. Her grown-up name, which her choreographer, lover, abuser, me to her, all those things, gives her. Her choreographer renames her Katya Simonova, even though she's a girl from Queens, in order to give her a fancy Russian name. She lost her mother in a car accident when she was seven. So there are these two characters who've had some significant childhood trauma. And John uh, eventually makes his way to the United States um, and he becomes a psychiatrist. He is invited into the home and adopted by a lovely couple named Barney and Selma who lost their only son in the battle for Sicily in World War II. And they adopt John and they wanna give him what they would have given their son, which is medical school. And by a random chance, a neighbor says, well, you should become a brain doctor because you've had so much trauma, basically. So he does. John becomes a psychiatrist. And he goes, um, so now I'm going to stop for a minute. I'm going to say what the three muses are, because that's a little bit of the plot. The three muses that frame this story are song, discipline, and memory. And this tradition of Greek mythology came from the region of Boeotia, just part of Greece. And I think what happens with any mythologies is they evolve differently in different parts of um, even one society or a, a varied society. So when I heard that the, about these three muses, I felt like lightning had struck. I was thought, well, these are the muses that frame my book. So John is loosely associated with song and song slash music are a very mixed bag for him. It, they are, it is what saved his life, but it is also a lifelong trauma because he had to sing for his family's killer. So he's on a medical conference as an adult in Paris. He's given a ticket to the ballet and he falls in love with a ballerina, which is pretty much the worst thing he could do because the ballerina cannot make a living. She cannot work without music. So he's in conflict in the most profound way. The ballerina Katya Simonova is loosely associated with discipline. And I don't speak ancient Greek, but I was really excited to learn that the, this word for discipline also brings into its meaning a priest preparing for prayer. And I sort of like that spiritual side of it. I like the work side and the spiritual side. The third muse is memory. And memory is something that, um, I think is terribly important for all of us, particularly for these characters who have such damaged memories. And also on the sort of meta level, um, Jewish character, 
um, who, who thinks about this and has told this as a child that uh, we Jewish people um, have a large collective memory and it's sort of how we've survived. We don't build cathedrals and big monuments and stuff like that. They, the collective memory is really what's held Jewish people together. So they're, they're different meanings. Um, when John falls in love with Katya, he has no idea that she's enmeshed with this choreographer named Boris. So that is a not short summary of the plot. I'm going to take a bit of a risk here of showing some ignorance on my part, but I think it might be useful if, if we just mention or if you explain this concept of muses. You've told us the, the origin of it as being uh, Greek mythology and that there were multiple muses, more than three. But as I recall the concept of muse, and we talked about this offline at uh, preparing for this interview, is a muse in my head what it is or was an inspiration, an inspirational figure or an inspirational uh, idea that helps to motivate and perhaps facilitate a person in a creative endeavor. So, so that's absolutely true. And that is absolutely the way that word is used as we use it now. And, and in, in my book, Katya is Boris Yanikov, her choreographer's muse. Absolutely. She is the person that inspires him to make ballets. And one of the conflicts in the book is that she actually co-creates those ballets with him and she never gets any credit. Now, I want to emphasize that a lot of the action in the book happens in the 1950s, and much of the action is in 1963, just before John F. Kennedy was murdered. And um, so there's a lot of Me Too stuff in terms of Katja's relationship with her choreographer. And one of it is that she doesn't get credit for anything she's doing, and that is a great frustration to her. But for sure, Katya is Boris Yanikov's muse. I was um, a kid who thought the Greek muses were really fun. There's a classic um, children's book uh, by Dolaire called about the Greek mythology. It's beautifully illustrated. And we had that in my house growing up. And um, in, in the more well-known strand of Greek mythology, there were nine muses. And I think the concept, they were, they were like demigods. They weren't really big gods like Zeus um, or, or Mars or whatever, that's Roman. But um, they, they were um, demigods who did inspire various creative pursuits. And so in the tradition that we are more familiar with today in the 21st century, there were nine muses. You know, there was a muse of poetry and a muse of dance and a muse of music and history. Um, and so there were all kinds of, it was a, it was a wider group. A discipline was not a muse in, in that tradition. So I am by no means an expert in this, but I think people who will have heard of the Greek muses will have heard of nine. Okay, so let me just catch up a little bit with what you said. Um, you mentioned now that discipline, which is one of the three of the muses that are accorded to your novel, is not historical in the sense of the Greeks, but you 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 gave it that characterization of, of a muse. Well, no, I think it is historical in the sense that there was a strand, a different strand of Greek mythology from Boeotia, and they only thought there were three muses. And these are this is all magic. Okay. Things, so however you think about it, so I didn't 
I didn't make that up, but I found it by accident. And then I really couldn't get any more information about it. It's just um, mentioned, and I, now I can't even remember by who, but it's mentioned by a Greek chronicler and not much else is known about it. Okay, so um, I'm choosing my words carefully. It was, in some ways it was a jumping off point for this novel, but it also sounded like, from what you said a moment ago, two moments ago, is that the idea for this novel was sort of percolating before you necessarily connected up with the muses. So let me ask you this question. Hopefully this is not an unfair question. Do you, Martha Toll, have muses that help inspire you to do what you do? That's such a good question. Um, I don't even know how to answer that. I would probably say in some ways, memory is my muse. I don't write autobiographical work, but I'm very inspired by emotional memory. And that is a complex thing for me. I mean, like all humans, it includes grief and sadness, but it also includes great joy and um, even euphoria. So I, I wouldn't say that I have a specific muse, although many, many people do. They, and many people are very open about it. Okay. So you've talked uh, about, you know, two, one of the characters is a professional ballerina. And so you didn't just come up with the idea of why don't I talk about ballet or ballerina you you yourself um have experience in that mode so can you talk about that sure so my mother um i'm one of four girls i'm sure she gave us all the option of taking ballet she was very interested and very committed to our cultural education i grew up in suburban philadelphia and um I'm pretty sure I went to my first ballet class at age four and I was just completely smitten. And over time, my mother put me into the school of the Pennsylvania Ballet, which is now called the Philadelphia Ballet. And uh, I just loved it. I couldn't spend enough time there. I was there as much as I could. Um, I was overjoyed, even as a very young child, to watch the professional company rehearse that, I don't know, that just still made such a deep impression. Unfortunately, I had no talent. And I guess what I, the, way, the clearer way to say is I absolutely don't have the right body for it. I have poor flexibility, not good feet, all kinds of things that, that are not good for a ballerina. And because this was a professional school, they were very open about that. And it was, it was quite difficult. Um, they essentially made it really clear they wouldn't advance me past the age of 12-ish, 13-ish, 12, I think. And it was, it, I viewed it at the time as an epic failure. It was, it was, I was young. I mean, I look back on it now, I think in some ways it was a great gift. I, I really, really believe in failure. I don't think, um, and it's certainly in the generation of my kids um, who are adults, there's, there's in some ways we don't allow our kids to fail enough. I think failure isn't really valuable because if you can pick yourself up from it, you are emboldened and strengthened by it. But I mean, it wasn't fun at the time. It was very disappointing. And then I basically kept up. I read ballet reviews and I go to a lot of ballet performances. So in some ways it was just imprinted on my body. And even though without the talent, which is interesting. Let me reintroduce my guest. That is, or this is Martha Ann Toll who just came out with her debut novel, 
the three muses, which we will be discussing in a little more detail and also a little more of her life. And she just told us her history um, uh, in terms of actually participating and learning about ballet um, and, and deciding to choose another path. Um, this is uh, hardly um, consistent with what you just talked about, but my parents decided that I needed to take tap dancing, not sensing that I had a talent, but quite the opposite. Some folks had said, he's a little awkward. I think he might benefit from tap dancing. Now, I was never asked about what particular artistic achievement I wanted to pursue. I would have said piano or guitar or like comedy or improv, <laughs> but I did. I went ahead with uh, their wishes and I won't say it was traumatic, but everything that I thought could, that could go wrong with me and tap dancing went wrong. And so it's now uh, comedy because I remember uh, that we did a number with a, a hotel type office bell and we were supposed to do our shuffle tap tap and all that. And I remember accidentally kicking the bell across the room during the recital and that was pretty much the end i didn't need to get the i didn't need didn't need to get the message but in I'm any event so sorry i mean i think that's true for many many students of ballet i mean there are dancers who became worldwide famous names who started that way i, mean, I recently learned that george balanchine who's the sort of preeminent choreographer of the 20th century he grew up in imperial russia this is before the russian revolution and he, his family had fallen on hard times and if you got your kid into the ballet school you, they got a free ride and they boarded so they got food and his sister tried out she didn't get in and they little georgie was standing there at age nine and they saw him we're like we need a boy so his mother just stuck him in the school so he she literally left him he had to board there that's how he got started totally against his will totally abandoned by his mother and there are many stories like that. I was a childhood asthmatic and I now, you're the first person who's made me realize this. I think the reason my mother supported this was because she thought it would be good for my breathing, which is interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about um, the inspiration a little bit more for the other prime character, John, who was called Yanka in the concentration camp. What was your thinking about blending or not blending, but moving him into the into a core role in this novel. Well, I still don't quite know how he came to me, but he came to me as a fully formed character. And I definitely am a person who has great interest in the Holocaust. I grew up in a very, very, very secular Jewish family. And in some ways, the Holocaust was my first introduction to Judaism. Um, and I'm related to Holocaust survivors, and I knew Holocaust survivors who were my friend's parents, and it really, really meant something to me. I mean, especially as I got older and I began to think about it, I had two thoughts. One is the Holocaust is so close in time to my own birth. It's not some ancient thing that we can say, oh, they were barbarians then. Um, second of all, in my family, my father's side is Ukrainian and my mother's side is German. On the German side and in Germany in general, 
the situation of German Jews, they were also extremely secular. Reform Judaism has its roots in Germany. And um, there's a famous historian, Holocaust refugee named Peter Gay, who said, I didn't know I was Jewish until Hitler was elected. And I think that's true for so many German Jews. They were as assimilated as American Jews are. And that is really sobering when you come to think of it. So it haunted me and I've done, I've read about it all my life. And as I've gotten older, I've asked people to tell me their stories, children of Holocaust survivors to tell me their stories. And the survivor stories are just unbelievable. And I always wanna remind readers and listeners that only a tiny, tiny fraction of people survived. So I want to uh, touch a little bit on the Holocaust. And again, because it is a significant part of the book and you've just explained how it was also uh, an integral part of your understanding of who you are, your ancestrage and so on. Um, you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago, just a moment ago that many Jews living in Germany did not, because they were, quote, secular. Um, but beyond that, they didn't think of themselves as Jews in a re religious orientation or much at all. That is presumably a reflection not only of those people, but also a complacency which developed because of um how they understood Germany and its acceptance of Jews or the seemingly seeming acceptance of Jews, which of course turned out to be very superficial and it didn't take long for the majority presumably of the population in Germany to turn on Jews, to identify Jews, to call out Jews, to label Jews, to make them wear the star of David and ultimately to send them to concentration camps and to their death. It seems to me, but again, I don't want to get too much in terms of present tense, but everything uh, has a past and a future and, and, a, and a present. We're experiencing some of that right now, not just in the United States, across the world, but principally, I'm talking about the United States, where um, things about the Holocaust, about Holocaust deniers, things about who Jews are and the extent to which people still continue to believe that somehow they're responsible for everything from wildfire fires in California to inflation to, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Does, how do you, how do you resonate with that? Well, that's a big question and I'm by no means an expert, but I'll take a stab at it. I do want to say you use the word complacency in Germany. I mean, I think they, you know, like if somebody asked me who I am, I'll say I'm an American. I, I won't say I'm Jewish first. So German Jews were, they were German first and mo many um, people, so, so German Jews served in the German army alongside everybody else. I mean, they were Germans in World War One. And um, that was something that really slowed down people's ability to take in what was happening. They're like, okay, I'm a German soldier. You know, they're never going to do anything to me. I served in the army. And so um, I, I agree with you. I think there are tremendous, um, really painful, scary resonances today. So first of all, um, 
there, there are two sides of this coin. It, there were, there was a very difficult for Jews to emigrate here, um, and there were many, many varieties of Jewish people in Europe. German Jews were quote more European Jews beyond the pale in Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, um, the whole eastern part of Russia, Ukraine. Those um, Jews, Romania, all, all of Eastern Europe, were considered to be. Um, they were lower class, they were less cultured, they were more insulated. And there's a lot of prejudice within the Jewish community about that. But anyway, they, so, so they, I just want to make that clear. There's an enormous variety of Jewish people in Europe, all of whom were slaughtered. But in this country, we, um, Roosevelt did not really allow a lot of immigration, despite the fact that there were Jewish leaders begging him and who understood what was going on. So we can come back to that. But today, I get, I, what I want to say is over time, Jews in the United States became classified as white people, and we have benefited from whiteness. So the same thing happened with Italians, Irish, and Jews who came over as um, were, were, you know, not allowed, don't eat here if you're Irish, don't eat here if you're Italian, you can't be a cop if you're Irish. So we have a long history in America of tremendous, tremendous bigotry. But Jews were ultimately given the privilege of whiteness. And I want to say that because it is not something that black people and brown people in this country have been able to get. And that's a complicated story. And we white people need to understand it really deeply. We ignore it our peril. However, that said, when push comes to shove, the extreme right does not see Jewish people as white people. Um, we are still the devil. Charlottesville is, is a very recent example of that. And January 6th, it's more recent. Um, they were, I don't even know what they were. I wouldn't repeat them if I did, but they were horrifying anti-Semitic chants in Charlottesville. We've seen the murders in Pittsburgh. We, there were people um, wearing just horrifying t-shirts at um, January 6th. So in this country, Jews are still, by the extreme right, they're still vilified. There's still terrible myths about the Margaret, Margaret, whatever her name is, Marjorie Taylor Greene, as talking about Jews and ladies. I don't want to go into it. So, uh, but I don't want to just talk about anti-Semitism. That's a problem here. But whatever the bigotry is, um, and we are, I hope, in a time of racial reckoning here, where we Americans, particularly we white Americans, need to deeply understand our history of racism and bigotry, because you said this, Mark, it doesn't go away and it comes back. And we're seeing this in this virulent anti-immigrant, anti-refugee backlash right now, the othering, you know, you can just go kill Muslim people with no repercussions or very little repercussions. You don't even make the front page. I want to say that we ignore this at our peril. And I also want to say that unless you are Native American or you came in chains, you are an immigrant to this country. So the idea that we're vilifying our own past makes no sense to me. So that's just the tip of the iceberg for me. So a, a number of really important points that you made, and I'm not going to go back and repeat them. I think you've sort of stated some, again, some really resonant views about things. One thing that did strike me in what you said is um, 
Jews were either uh, white or they weren't white. Um, being able to be white <clears throat> gave those folks who, you know, accepted them in, in some fashion a justification because they're they're white people. But as soon as the tide turns, <clears throat> you have a difficult economy or <clears throat> difficult political issues. Those same people can slide Jews back into a fin finite category. <clears throat> it's unfortunate, but it's, it seems like it makes sense. Well, you're you're really just another person of color, and then and then for those purposes, you know, you're indistinguishable from um, indigenous people or people that came to this country uh, as slaves. So it's a sobering topic, and I want to get back into the story, but I do want to just mention, and we talked about this before we went online, uh, Ken Burns, um, a, a very skilled documentarian, uh, recently had a, a three-part series on the Holocaust, and neither in, you or I have yet had the opportunity to, to view the entire piece, um, or perhaps in your case, an, any of it, but we know about that it emphasized in, in that trilogy, those three parts, the parallels about what happened in the 40s and 30s and 40s and things that we're experiencing today. And you ticked off a number of them, uh, Charlottesville, January 6th, um, you know, the, the way in which, again, people are being pushed into categories. And that that is a sobering thought. And so, not only doesn't go away, it's important um, to sort of keep it uh, center of mind. And so I'm gonna use that, but first I again want to reintroduce my guest, Martha Ann Toll, uh, with a debut novel, The I keep saying the, Three Muses. Um, I wanna introduce you and talk further again about these strands of ideas and concepts and that you weave into the three muses. And I, and I also want to say, because I didn't say this earlier, it's a debut novel for you, but because you are most obviously a very skilled writer, um, not only did you get uh, the award uh, from the publisher, but your book has already been very well reviewed by Washington Post and other, um, you know, there's a, a, a website, an online magazine uh, that caters to um, books and arts and culture um, that, that said your novel was the most, one of the most anticipated novels for the second half of 2022. Um, and another a magazine said, this is one of 57 books that, uh, they can't wait to read and that they recommend to others. So this is um, great praise for you and your, your abilities. But I let's get back into, again, sort of the weaving and add a little bit more to the, to the plot lines here. We have a Holocaust survivor who has memories that he tries to suppress about how he was fortunate enough to survive uh, but carries guilt with him at some level, comes to America, and goes into psychiatry of all things, um, 
And then we have a, a, a ballerina who's very skilled, had some trauma in her own life, but she's perfected it. And as you use the term, well, you indicated that her success is in part attributable to a choreographer who's helpful, but at the same time, he's an abuser. So take us through a little bit more of the, of the interplay with all of that. Sure. And I really appreciate your mentioning the reviews. I'm incredibly grateful. And I don't take it lightly. I just, it's very hard to get a novel born. So I feel incredibly grateful. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the ballerina Katya. And I think in your audience, you probably have um, writers and readers. And I received a lot of early feedback about her that she wasn't likable enough likable first of all i read a lot of novels i don't necessarily believe in likability but i also felt kind of annoyed about it because katya is very ambitious and she could not be where she is if she didn't have ambition and serious ambition you cannot become a ballerina just like you cannot become a star basketball player or a star football player, a star tennis player, any of these physical activities, a concert pianist, unless you go all in 300%. And she understands that from a very, very early age and she wants this. And I felt that some of the feedback I was getting had to do with the fact that she was ambitious. And so, you know, the, it raises my feminist hackles, what can I say? But she understands her world is very, very narrow. She's an let, only child. Let me stop on that for one second, because you mentioned feminism. I was going to raise it. You know, people make the same comments to an extent about male sports stars, but they seem to tolerate it more. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with their, I believe it has to do with their maleness. I mean, you can only say so many negative things about LeBron James. You can only say so many <laughs> negative things about, you know, football players who, you know, seem to be stuck on themselves. But you make an excellent point that we all, we all as pe people who watch sports or who watch th uh, theater or attend ballet, we, we are happy, happy to have those people extraordinarily skilled, but we are also not happy to be acquainted with their foibles and we get all torn up about it. But I think it's more specifically geared uh, a lot of the enmity with females because we, we experienced that with the Olympic champions and we don't have to go into that detail, but please go ahead. I'm sorry to have interrupted. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and so Katya is an only child. When her mother dies, her father is stricken and he has to work. So she grows up in a, a quiet, lonely household. She has an aunt who takes a great interest in her. This is a what was called a maiden aunt in the 1950s. She's, she's single and she's an, a secretary in an attorney's office. So she's a career lady. So Katya spends a lot of time by herself and it's the aunt who actually gets her her ballet lessons. And, and ballet, the world of professional ballet is, it, it's, it's a, a real bubble. So it's, um, exciting and all those things and terribly difficult hard work 
But those are the two worlds that Katya knows. She doesn't, I mean, she, she barely finishes high school like most ballerinas. She, she, you don't go to college. You usually get hired when you're 16 or 17 into the professional company. So her, her world is very narrow. And she understands that Boris Yanikov, the choreographer, is her ticket to the stage. And she also worships him. And that's an uncomfortable truth in this book. Um, and because he does abuse her. And I didn't really want to sugarcoat that. I felt like this is a real thing. We see it all the time in the arts. We see it all over the place, but it's it's a real thing in the arts. And so she she knows he's her ticket to the stage. So she, um, and she is inspired by her work with him. So as, as she knows, she's he, he's given her the stage. He's, as ballerinas say, made ballets on her. They use the preposition on. And when she meets John, although she's never had a true love relationship with a man that's, that's not encumbered, um, she has to think about, is she willing to give this up? What will this do to her relationship with her choreographer? But she's also so torn up about it and she can't, she drops a lot of hints, but she can't figure out how to tell John what's going on because she does have some understanding that it's not going to make sense to anybody outside of the ballet world. Okay. Um, let's pick up um, a little bit, just a one further point. We've mentioned, or you've mentioned the choreographer abusing her, basically, you know, very re resonant with the times, using his position of leverage to obviously have sex, but also, um, I believe we talked about this, is that he, the choreographer, was working collaboratively mm -hmm. with Katya on the various moves, and she contributed and yet she was given no byline for her efforts in, in, the, in the collaboration and, and choreographer, which is, again, something we hear about a lot today. So that was something that you felt was also important to build into the relationship. We do hear about that a lot today. And um, I think as more feminist historians sort of dig around, I mean, the composer Felix Mendelssohn, who's world famous, is said to have probably used many of his sister's compositions and signed them himself. You hear the same thing about Albert Einstein, uh, possibly Mozart. I mean, these are big figures who um, had women in their lives who may have actually been literally co-creating. Um, and that's conscious position. And she understands, she is very frustrated. I don't think it, it wasn't, you know, this is not a, me too is not a new thing. I think women throughout history have understood they're not getting credit for their creations. And it's a tremendous frustration. Um, and, but she can't really fix that. And she doesn't really take Yanikov on about that. Um, so, I think like many women of her era, she, she was terribly frustrated, but she also didn't, you know, go to the newspapers like you might do today, or, you know, go to the press, put it on her Twitter feed, whatever. She basically had to suck it up. Well, I think it's reflective in what you're saying um, is that she cared so much about her craft Mm -hmm. And she cared so much about her success. And this is by no means a justification, but she recognized that if she 
came out or if she confronted in this case the choreographer and what's his name again please boris yanikov boris directly she would risk uh, losing her career which is not something she was prepared to do and that again is a constant theme and one that re resonant today it's not you know women don't choose to get on a casting couch hopefully that term can be hopefully retired at some point because that that's what they want to do or it's because that is in many cases it has proved to be one of the only ways up you know and there right. there are actors and actresses which is not the term we use for female actors today who have been able to buck that and chart their own way without getting permanently blackballed um interesting the use of that term unbelievable but, and i think in the case of the conductor james levine who was the metropolitan a celebrated metropolitan opera conductor he was abusing young boys and it didn't really come out until after he died. I mean, it is so, there is so much taboo even today. We see it in the Catholic priesthood. Um, Peter Martins, who was ultimately fired from the New York City Ballet, but he was, you know, Balanchine's handpicked successor. And he was, um, I, I don't totally understand what he's been accused of, but a lot of it is battering, battering women. And um, it takes insane amounts of courage to come out about this. Um, Harvey Weinstein, we've seen that, you know, there's, it takes so much courage and you absolutely risk losing your career and your, and I think, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm going to assume that more people lose their careers than get justice by a lot, a very large amount. I don't want to fail to mention again, moving off a uh, tangent, your um, career um, <laughs> in music, because you went from um, coming to the realization, deciding or being told um, you're not ballet material and you developed a passion and skill and you were in performance mode for in music. Can you talk about that? Sure. And sometimes I can say this more easily, saying it backward, that I think that writing, it took me some, I mean, I always wrote, I was always a writer. My legal jobs always involved a lot of writing. I was the person who snail mailed and wrote in a journal and all that stuff. But in some ways, telling it backwards, I think writing is actually my artistic medium. It took me a, a medium. It took me a long time to find it. Um, so I did study viola and I had the tremendous good fortune of falling into the hands of an absolutely extraordinary teacher, mentor, violist, gorgeous musician when I was 14 years old. And he changed my life in very significant ways. And he was, he was totally inspiring. And one reason he was so inspiring was that he knew how to deconstruct what he could do and teach you how to practice. His name was Max Aronoff. He was in the first graduating class from Curtis Institute of Music, which mm. is a preeminent music school in the United States and has always been tuition free. So it has always attracted the best musicians in the world, actually. So he, he was in the first graduating class and he also founded the Curtis String Quartet. And I had the good fortune to study with him through high school and part of college. And um, he, he was a great 
gift of the gab, very salty figure, and he, um, fabulous raconteur, but he had spent his pedagogical life trying to think, how do you train string players? Um, how to learn how to play viola? And it, it sounds so obvious, but many, many, many musicians cannot teach their craft. They, um, they don't understand how to get from point A to point B. So the lessons with Max were about practicing. You had to stay there for an hour and practice. And the early on, like really early on, like early in, you know, when I was 14, he was like, no, you need to be practicing three hours a day. And in order to be able to practice three hours a day, you have to know how to take the music apart and into its component parts. And I've always said, he taught me the value of incremental learning that if you take things if, if you take things apart you can do things piece by piece and i think that's true for writing a novel if you uh, i don't i don't know how to write a novel but i know how to write a sentence <laughs> that's sort of how i think about it so from there i i played very very seriously through college um symphony music uh, chamber music uh, court, string quartets did a lot of performing um I ultimately did not go into music because I felt that although I thought I could have a career, I didn't think I would have any choice. Um, I didn't think I was good enough to have the choices that better musicians have. And I sort of began to feel my own limitations. And I did realize that I had um, what I, I guess more comfort facility with words. And so law school made more sense. Obviously there were other choices, <laughs> but um, what I do wanna say is that when I really began writing fiction in earnest, my goal was to get music on the page. I'm still struggling, still trying. I think I have a pretty musical ear and I hear language musically. And so that'll probably be my lifelong pursuit. <laughs> but it's, again, as, as I've indicated, it's your, it's a multi, you have multifaceted pursuits and you've woven them, if that's the right word, together. Again, my guest today is Martha Ann Toll, uh, whose novel Three Muses has been um, very well received to, as an understatement and um, tremendous imagination, I would ima imagine, just to put it together. So that's going to lead me to my question. I don't mean to be. Um, in any way polemic, but why do you think it took you 12 years <laughs> to do question. it? <laughs> so I have a lot of answers to that. Um, I couldn't, one easy answer is I couldn't get the right order. I got early advice to tell it chronologically and I was not telling it chronologically. So I took it all apart and did that. Um, then I didn't like the fact that I was telling it chronologic. That was a basic one. It was to figure out a basic structure and in what order to tell the story. I feel like when we get to know a person, you never get a chronological recounting. So I feel like you, I don't love the, you know, the, the chronological recounting. And they lived okay. happily ever after. You don't like it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that was one problem. Second problem was that I'm not, despite being extremely organized and rational and analytic in my day job as a lawyer and as a social justice advocate, in fiction land, it's chaos. So a nicer way to say that would be it's organic. I, outlines don't do me any good in fiction. So I sort of started in the middle and worked out. 
And the result of that was I had a lot of things in there that didn't stay. Both of the characters were parents at various times. And they then, in John's case, his children started to take over the novel. And I'm like, this isn't working. So neither of them has children in the finished version. But anyway, there were, there were long tangents that I had to um, get rid of. And I also, I think this is very typical for beginning novelists. Um, I wrote a lot of backstory and it was too much. So at some point I had to take out a lot of the backstory because I think it slows readers down. Um, so those are like some of the reasons that it took so long. Also, I had a full-time job. Also, I was writing reviews. There's, there's a few other reasons, so. But you have a lot of creative impulses, obviously. And it sounds to me like, even though I'm guessing that your next novels, your next uh, written pieces, um, well, not let me stick with novels, you might say, well, I've learned something about the art, so to speak, of writing, and I can be, um, you know, more, more facile, more, I can do it on a more expedited base. You're probably, you're not going to presumably change who you are, which is a person who brings a lot into the process and then winnows it down. Yes, but, and I appreciate that. I guess there's another thing that I want to say, because writers don't say this enough, but um, I happen to be a very fast writer and it's easy for me, like at work, if they, you need a memo tomorrow, I can produce that. I, I am a really, really fast writer and it is to my detriment. I mean, you hear a lot from writers who have writer's block and they're slow and they can't get a sentence out. It took me, I would say, a good five years to slow down enough to really stop at all the icky places where I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm rereading this and trying to revise it. I'll just skip that because I don't feel like dealing with it. You, it took me so long to slow down to a snail's pace where I was looking at every single word, every sentence, and really interrogating whether this is okay, does this follow the meaning of the novel or not. And so I think a lot of my journey has been to slow down, which is a weird thing to say, but it happens to be true. So I want to ask you a, a, an, another question, again, specifically relating to the book. I'm guessing that people that write nonfiction, it's pretty clear what the purpose is. I mean, they, they obviously they have multi-purposes, but the, the purpose of the nonfiction piece is to tell a story about an event or someone living at, at a particular point in time and getting enough of the, of the full story, what went into that person's thinking or what was, why was this an epoch moment or epochal, if that's even a word, moment. Nonfiction, you, you don't have to, I would guess, have a purpose other than to tell a story. But I'm also guessing that I want you to respond is you had at least one, perhaps many purposes about birthing, if I can use that term, this novel. And I want to find out what that was and what it is you want people to take away from this novel. I, I mean, in terms of what I want people to take away, I want this to be some form of entertainment and embracing experience. I, I don't have another motive. I do deeply believe in telling the Holocaust story forward. I'm 
really nervous about future generations not understanding it. But I wouldn't say I write fiction with a purpose. I think that um, I'm not a journalist, and I think that some journalists who go over to fiction to prove a point, I don't think it's great literature. I think it's super important. Like, obviously, Upton Sinclair was incredibly important to write The Jungle. I'm not sure it's great literature. And same for Sinclair Lewis or uh, Theodore Dreiser. Those, those novels are really important in terms of exposing social problems. I don't think as a fiction writer, I, I have a, an agenda. And so I can't even answer in some ways what motivates me, but this is why I feel like I have finally found my artistic medium. I am um, driven, I'm really compelled. I don't even know why, or, you know, people talk about being called to it. I feel called to writing and I can't even necessarily say why. It's really weird. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of um, <clears throat> mystical in a way. Well, would it be fair to say that um, it's not a linear purpose, but a purpose is you have, you, you were highly motivated to mm -hmm. write about this, these topics and the muses and the, and the connection between memory and wisdom and trauma and love, all of that, that was, that was what you wanted to say. And, and you wanted to do it in a way in which it wasn't to use a term didactic mm -hmm. because exactly. it's, because it's not, it's not nonfiction, but the hope was this was so influential to you. You felt you wanted to get it on the page and share it. And, um, and that's presumably what you've accomplished. And by all accounts, um, somebody can, it's not a long book. It's 264 pages, if I'm not mistaken, without regard to the preface of any footnotes. So, so it doesn't, so that it won't take a long time and, and somebody could just read it and say, I'm captivated by the story of John and Katya and, and I, and I, this is what I got out of it. And I, I, I can resonate with part of it, but it's a, it's a story. And exactly. That's I feel like we humans like to hear stories. So I just, I think at the basic level, yes, I just want to tell a story. I always, aspire to reaching people in their hearts. I really care about that. Like I, I hope that readers have an emotional response, but you can't, you know, I always say the writer reader partnership is fully 50, 50. So you don't know what the reader will feel, but that's what I hope for. So we have a, about five minutes left. I'm going to revert now to talking about this, the a couple of the other dimensions of you. First of all, again, to repeat, if I didn't say this earlier, you do a lot of book reviews. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how when you do a book review, um, you're not looking at it as an opportunity for you to exercise a negative critical critique. And, and I think you mentioned to me earlier that if it's a if it's a work you don't like, you're probably not going to be the one who wants to write it because what you're doing is reviewing it so that people who might be interested in the content can get a you know a, a glimpse as to what it's about. That's one thing you do. Um, so let we can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I I I definitely see reviewing early on. I um, heard some Washington Post critics say this, and I really agree with it that. Um, a book reviewer's primary job is to get 
um, readers interested in books and to bring new books to readers. So that's what I view my job as. I'm very committed to looking for voices um, that are maybe have more trouble getting reviewed, less uh, with either independent presses, people of color, women, people who are not going to be in the mainstream immediately. It's really important to me to try to get those voices out because they're terrific and they need to be read. So I see it as a, what can I um, bring readers that will give them pleasure and interest. So in the last few minutes, uh, short time horizon here, what are the one or two really important social justice issues that you think needs to be talked about or that you're occupying yourself with that would be instructive to all of us? Well, so the number one social justice issue that I'm interested in is race in America. And I really believe so deeply that white people need to deeply educate themselves, ourselves, about the history in this country. Um, and it's everywhere and it affects everything. And the history is ugly, ugly, ugly. And we need to understand it. We cannot move on as a country without it. In my work life, I worked um, on, on homelessness and housing. Um, I was never asked whether I was going to have a choice of housing. Nobody, I mean, the idea that housing is a privilege is just makes me out of my mind. Housing should be a right. Um, we shouldn't be discussing it. We shouldn't have homeless people. We don't need to have homeless people. So that's a big one. And then I spent a lot of time in criminal justice, which gets you to racism immediately. And I just feel like um, if we could own our history of racism in America and our present racism, we would heal, we would be able to heal as a country. Um, I, I really so believe this. So I guess that, that for me, there's really one thing that we need to address. And um, I'm married to a climate activist, so I need to say global warming, but he's doing that work in our family. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think our America's history of racism and genocide, we, 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 white people have to embrace it and understand well, I'm glad that that is the emphasis, that you're putting that with emphasis, because I think the lines are drawn. There's your viewpoint, which is we need to talk about it because we don't talk about it. We don't we won't rise above it. But there is the fight is against the people that say we don't want to expose that. We don't want to talk about it. That's what happened 240 years ago. It's not happening today. It's not important. And that seems to me to draw the battle line, so to speak, pretty, pretty clearly. I, so just like I, I feel like I tried to communicate in three muses. I just feel we ignore history at our peril. It's really, really dangerous for all of us. So as they say, um, Martha and Hole, that's the last word on this. I'm, we're all privileged to have had you do this interview about your book, Three Muses, and about you and about your sense of justice and history. I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much.